0: For more information, visit www.navic.co. Now, let's jump into the episode.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to another Roundtable episode. We're joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, Mihai Vico, game strategist at Doppelganger, and Jonathan Anastas, CEO of Clash TV. Hi, everyone.
2: Hello. Hello. everyone. to be here.
1: Yeah, Mihai, thanks for joining us for your, fe- for your first episode. It's good to have you here. So, um, yeah, do you mind kicking us off with a quick self-intro?
3: Of course. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very, very catchy name, I guess. Um, so I'm Mihai. I'm, um, for the last few years, uh, I was a market analyst at Newzu, which is basically um, one of the leading market research firms in the gaming industry. And now, more recently, I've joined Doppelganger as a game strategist, where we work with brands and we help them um basically ideate, create, and develop um, their uh, gaming strategies or gaming-related strategies.
1: Cool. Um, You'll have interesting thoughts to share. I'm looking forward to hearing them. And Jonathan, I say Clash TV, you have a new role. Congrats.
2: Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, I joined this month Clash TV, where a streaming platform focused on helping emerging and niche sports find their audience in a changing media landscape. So thrilled to be here. We will have a Web3 gaming strategy and an esports strategy to be announced in the near future. So I stay very close to this category here that I love.
1: Ooh. I, I, also, another game I like, Clash TV. It makes it sound like a wrestling channel or something. <laughs> it's just bodies clashing. And last but not least, Aaron brought us his donut hat.
0: Yep. Next regular appearance. Happy to be here. And congrats, Jonathan, on the new role, too. That's exciting stuff.
1: Aaron, you didn't say you're usually happy. Hello. Are you are you dropping them?
0: Oh, I don't know. My intros are always really awkward. Sometimes recently I've gotten them from ChatGPT and they haven't (laughs) they haven't really worked. Um, But I, I should probably bring that bring that back. That would be fun.
1: Yeah, I was listening to last week's episode and I was waiting for it and then it didn't, it didn't come. That's okay. I
0: can, I can bring it back.
1: Cool, cool. All right. What are we talking about this week? Uh, yeah, EA's layoffs, E3 saying goodbye and catching us by surprise or not surprise. We'll, we'll discuss that. The mobile gaming market is meant to be stabilizing and we'll dive into what that means and if we believe that that is accurate. And also looking at the games that Sky Mavis announced for his Ronin blockchain. And first up, we have Mihai. So what's going on with eSports?
3: Um, yeah. So as many of uh, our listeners probably already know, eSports is in a pretty bad shape and has been in a pretty bad shape as of late. Uh, but this week started with a few shock announcements uh, to many eSports fans. Uh, so basically, there were two announcements, uh, one or two days apart. Um. And essentially, both TSM, one of the most decorated teams in the history of League of Legends, also active in other sports and just a very um, popular esports org with a lot of fans, has announced that it will pause its esports efforts in several titles and is likely to be selling their uh, League of Legends spot in the LCS in North America. Um, And one day after this announcement, CLG, Another very seasoned esports org based in NA announced that it's closing its doors as an esports org. Um, and obviously mass layoffs are to follow suit. Um, so we know esports has been in a slump as of late. Uh DSM, you know, DSM was rumored to be in a pretty bad shape after the, fall, uh, the FTX's fallout. But I don't think... Many people expected two of the largest eSports orgs in NA to actually disband to essentially stop their operations. And I'm wondering if we see these two huge orgs with a lot of fans and a lot of traction among sponsors and uh, other third parties close their doors, what will happen to other less seasoned eSports teams and organizations? And the second thing I'm wondering, and that would be nice to discuss is, is a vicious cycle likely to follow? We know eSports teams have been traditionally highly reliant on sponsorship revenue um, as a main revenue driver. So, you know, if some of these big teams close their doors then will this mean that less fans are engaging with eSports as a whole, which will drive, in turn, less viewership and less fan engagement, which in turn means that you know it becomes less attractive for brands and for brands, both endemic and non-endemic, to sponsor esports, which will kind of further accentuate the slump. What do you think?
2: So I have a crazy view here, which is, mm-hmm. it seems to me, in these cutbacks, esports teams. Shouldn't be cutting back on the thing that they are by definition, which is esports teams, right? So if you're going to stop doing something, maybe stop making crazy expensive merch, maybe like pull back on your like creator side, like the core business seems to be the thing that they should be doubling down on, right? In, in times of financial difficulty. And to your point, the greatest risk is to break the flywheel, and the flywheel is based on being competitive esports teams. Could you imagine if a professional sporting team said, We're in financial trouble, so we're gonna stop doing professional sports? Like,
0: <sighs> yeah. yeah. I think the especially with TSM dropping league or selling that spot, that that's where I was like, are they shooting themselves in the foot by that specific move? Like they're the biggest esport above all, where they probably have the most Fans and have you know probably a decent chunk of their revenue coming through. And I, I, yeah, I don't know <laughs> what the logic is, but it but it definitely is rough. And I guess like the it's just that the economics don't really work anymore, even for some of these like larger um, sports. So they just have to make tough decisions where just like the cost of operating in these leagues and paying players, which I know uh, you know we've seen salary rises grow pretty quick over time. That maybe it's hard to unwind from from that. Um, you know, that's made a dent. While revenue from lower engagement, you know, post COVID, et cetera, um, has also been hit harder. But to me, I mean, it seems like I mean, apart from like esports prize pool weddings, that the like the formula for an esports business is the number of fans you have times the average revenue per fan, if that revenue is profitable. And so we've seen all of these teams go a little crazy on both sides of that equation, where like to earn fans, you know, they're going going hard in just creator verticals, partnering with streamers and YouTubers and and things like that that maybe didn't work as well as planned in terms of converting those viewers into you know league of legends you know fans or something something like that so then on the other side of the spectrum just throwing things against the wall in order to earn revenue such as merch or you know random partnership deals or or what have you and to me it just feels like that equation needs to like be reset and get refocused on what matters most which you know, hopefully that would be esports in this case, as you're saying, Jonathan, but I guess it's kind of hard to know without looking at the the numbers on what really is driving, you know, the the profitable revenue in those those cases. But it is dangerous to abandon what you're known for.
2: I think like crypto, like crypto disrupted the ecosystem, right? And all of a sudden, these big checks started landing outside of the core business. You know, for traditional sports, that was a smaller percentage of revenue, so it didn't matter so much. And now with that money gone, but I kind of blame Phase Clan for kind of this misdirection, right? Which is like somewhere along the line, this category th- thought they were selling cool instead of esports, and it's called esports. To your point, Aaron, right? Like if if you're not participating there, you can't just export cool. So yeah, I I think we're we sound somewhat aligned and in the surprise and shock here.
1: Well, but didn't that happen? And I think we've discussed this in a past episode, for example, the franchise model where the teams have to pay so much to even participate in the esports style, they can't make their money back. And then if they get, uh, you know, if there's no TV licensing or TV, I mean streaming platform licensing deals for them to get some revenue stream from that, if the price pools are dwindling in size, like, is it actually profitable with all of these costs to keep your doors open and not pivot to try to find other revenue streams that are not
3: esports? I think that's pretty much the case. Like, Jonathan, you're saying that, you know, um, they should be focusing more on their core business. But I think the main reason they don't focus more on their core business is that it's just not making them enough money to stay afloat. This is exactly why we've seen them try anything and everything, including, you know, partnerships with pretty much anyone who's willing to throw money their way, including blockchain and Web3 uh, companies. but yeah, I think some works like a hundred thieves. Um, they were making the revenue. They were making like a third of the revenue from merch, a third from their esports activity, and a third from other activities. And I think this was, in their case, this split was on the good side because most teams are making even less than that on the esports vertical alone.
0: Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. The the other thing. The the last thing maybe uh, that comes to mind is just a lot of these teams raise so much money on so much hype, and it's hard to backtrack from that to unwind all of the investment that you put in <laughs> to a bunch of areas. But also, you know, at a time to stay competitive, um, that sort of seemed like it was the norm that, you know, teams were were chasing. But yeah, really thorny on all sides. I think esports as a business probably just wasn't ever what it was hyped up to be. But the unwinding phase, which I think we're in the middle of, it's been going on for a while. It's it's just tough. Very tough.
1: And I don't have a, uh, an answer for your question, Mihai, about the vicious cycle. Uh, Jonathan, do you have any views on whether by seeing these big teams uh, leave? For example, League of Legends tournaments, do you think that that will dwindle the numbers of the fans and so on with that cycle?
3: Perhaps an even uh, relatively more straightforward question. Do you think we'll see more esports teams following the footsteps of CLG and DSM?
2: It's a very interesting question, right? To to your point, if there are fewer competitive teams, does that unwind the whole flywheel? The question that I don't think we've answered yet because this category is so new is our eyeballs driven by the underlying IP, right? Are you tuning in to watch League? Are you tuning in to watch COD? And almost who's playing as long as they are competent is irrelevant. Or does it look more like traditional sports where who ends up, in the finals has a huge bearing on ratings, right? In, in traditional sports, there's nothing they want more than like New York versus LA or Chicago versus LA. And, you know, it can have double digit changes on ratings. And in esports, that hasn't been the case, right? It's like the IP is what's driving the eyeballs. And I think we're about to find that out, right? If more If more esports organizations start unwinding, we're going to learn the answer to that question.
0: I think leagues need to reset cuz the teams are sort of operating at the whims of the games and the yeah. companies that own the games and you know run the run the show that they must play inside of and so um yeah i mean someone like activision we know has we've talked about before they've you know been leaned very on the greedy side and have viewed esports more as a revenue driver more so than like a engagement driver um i mean it's both but um you know, by treating it as a revenue driver, it increases cost for for all the participants. And so, honestly, I think <laughs> if if games want prosperous esports, they need to be more generous <laughs> in how they set up their ecosystem to succeed. I don't know if we'll see that happen, um, and that's probably more specific to the top games more so than the long tail of games. But, but yeah, probably a major reset is needed. I think the vicious cycle will probably continue unless. Um, the publishers step in with a bit more generosity, for better or worse.
1: Agreed. Well, we'll keep an eye on how things develop and then, yeah, approach it again in the episode when we have more more news on that front. So unfortunately, continuing on the layoff train, uh, Jonathan, what's going on with EA?
2: Yeah, speaking of top publishers, so EA announced that they're laying off 6% of their employees across a number of departments, and taking, I think, up to a $200 million write-off related to that. My first couple of thoughts are, you know, in terms of framing how they did it, you know, they're going to focus on larger scale, higher engagement, bigger community, IP. And my first question is, wasn't that what they're supposed to be doing all along, right? Hasn't that become the model of big publishers, right? If you look at the top 10 gaming charts for years and years and years at any given time, 80% of it is sequel or franchise or, or top IP, y- you know, EA has got four games on the top 10 charts now, one of them is new IP, right? So it makes sense, but it also sort of feels like you're just confirming that you are doing what you probably always should have been doing. doing A, right? And then B, it seems like Wall Street has given them a bit of a reward for the financial prudence you know, we've seen this happen with Fang in the last 60 days, right? Fang announced hundreds of thousands in layoffs, and they've been the highest rising stocks of the first quarter, you know, Meta's up 70%, Tesla's up 60%. So if EA was making a play to Wall Street, they got exactly what they wanted, right? They gave they get all the stock value back that they lost when they announced stepping out of mobile. So if, if they were making a market cap play, uh, they've succeeded. I would argue if they are in fact gonna focus on fewer bigger better they are also gonna succeed you know Activision got a big hard time from the gaming community when they decided to make that decision about a decade ago and I was there and they became exceedingly profitable and you know continue to set the bar for the highest valuation you know in a gaming transaction so you know it's 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 a moment that reflects the times but it feels like the right decision
3: yeah i like first thing that uh, I don't know, I've just observed and that you've also mentioned is that you know most of the time when these big tech firms or when gaming companies are uh, are announcing layoffs, we we can basically see the stock go up. And I'm like, this is such a weird thing from a you know human perspective or from any perspective in general to see you know basically people are are left without a job, then now we're kind of celebrating this happening uh through the stock going up. But to 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 my other point, like it feels expected given the current macroeconomic situation, but it's also a little bit weird. Because on the one hand DA has been laying has already laid off some people a few months ago. Um and they've you know it's not like they're in a tough financial position necessarily. Like a few months ago, I think, towards the end of January, they've delayed their their um, their their new their upcoming Star Wars game, which will very likely be a hit from all perspectives. And some people may argue that they've done this precisely to kind of prop up their next round of earnings. So it's very much expected that the next round of earnings for EA will look very good partly as a result of the layoffs, partly as a result of the new Star Wars game coming out. Um, so, you know, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me.
0: I mean, I, it it kind of does to me. I mean, I think we're going through an era where companies are trying to be fiscally fit. Um, and, you know, they put a spin on it. I don't think anybody is... Necessarily celebrating <laughs> the layoffs, I, I think it you know the stock going up is more just the math of you know what's in models and what it means for profits and things like that, not really celebration. Um, but I, I mean, I think Jonathan, you kind of said it right where <laughs> where you said, "Well, haven't they been kind of doing this already?" And I think that's largely true. And so I, I have a feeling most of the public rationale is is mainly spin. But uh, the one piece of it that felt kind of new to me uh was um uh i think they said they'll be focused on a handful of strategic uh, strategic priorities going forward building games with large communities making the most of those communities with social and creator tools and i feel like that creator tool piece of things um is actually quite new and actually might be telling of where they aim to take their major franchises going forward. As we saw with Activision Blizzard, um, what that has meant has meant different things for different franchises, but really like, you know, probably the largest driver of that business has been Call of Duty, less from like a creator standpoint and more from, well, we'll just bring it to mobile, we'll make it free to play and we'll just build this massive ecosystem around it to get juice as much engagement as possible from this mega IP. And EA doesn't really have a Call of Duty per se, It has other really strong IPs that they, I'm sure they could take in more directions. But if they really want to turbocharge engagement further, um, then it kind of makes sense to unleash the community upon it (laughs) in new ways. And we're already seeing this maybe a bit with The Sims. It was announced a few months ago that Ford Sims 5, EA is partnering with Overwolf to essentially integrate Um, UGC capabilities into the game which makes a ton of sense for for that franchise to be able to level it up in that kind of way but maybe we can see it elsewhere I mean it it could make sense in like other big franchises like a need for speed to help take it to the next level Um, several other you know places too Um, so I think that that part to me was kind of like the one interesting bit that stood out from the announcement that might be telling Um, I don't know also, I mean, I think all the mobile shenanigans play into this as well in terms of just how they're resetting. And they have been over the past um, few months. And I, I can't fully blame them um, for that when they look at how the unit economics of mobile have just changed in the industry. But, um, but yeah, it is more of the same, but also um, perhaps a little bit telling of how they're thinking differently about the future.
2: First, bonus points for using the term shenanigans, one of my favorites. (laughs) And also, while certainly nobody wants to celebrate the loss of jobs, it's interesting because there is a school of thought circulating Silicon Valley right now that is all of these large tech and gaming companies grossly overhired, you know, during the pandemic era. And, you know, I think Professor Galloway even referred to this as like basically white collar UBI, right? Like, Six-figure UBI based on like you know a decade of zero interest rates, and even post layoffs, you're looking at headcounts significantly higher than 2019. So you know there there may have been an irrational exuberance in all this hiring over the last few years, fueled by zero interest rates and and all these companies. I believe today, from Amazon to EA, etc., are all net double-digit headcount versus 2019.
0: Yeah. And the other thing with EA too is just that, I mean, the focus on like the bigger IPs, I, I can see sort of making sense because where they haven't done that recently, it hasn't worked. <laughs> uh, mobile being probably the largest example through their acquisitions, um, even. Um, so, yeah, I could see them wanting to just reflect over the past few, the past handful of years, be like, well, we probably did over over hire. We probably have people in areas where the economics are not as strong as what our core business has been. And we're actually seeing our strongest performance from what is our biggest IP already. So let's lean into that further, um, unlock what we can, and move forward. I think that makes a lot of sense from like a managing risk perspective and doubling down to what you know works. Part of me still is a bit worried about when you do that... Um, you also make yourself more susceptible to like innovation around the edges in the industry, and it makes it a bit harder to to potentially catch up. I mean, that did happen to them with mobile, and when they tried to catch up, it didn't didn't work. Um, so I would be a bit concerned about the industry growing past these big companies in some ways when they do that. But I think these big IPs like FIFA have have legs. So I think EA is still pretty well positioned for the next three to five plus years, if I had to guess.
1: Yeah, I thought that I think the last point I thought that The relationship with Overwolf is quite interesting to see how that's going to play out because I, a few days ago, was at Arc Survival announced the partnership with Overwolf to do cross-platform modding so that you can do mods on PC. And then you can see that and engage with it on console, which has always been a barrier in terms of creation and monetizing that you have this whole audience that you can't access. So I'm very interested to see how EA will take advantage of that to create the, the creator economy. And on uh, this has nothing to do the creator economy. I have stage fright because Devin has such great transitions, and I had a blank. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> so I we'll move on to the next topic, which is Diablo Four. Yeah, Mihai, How's the beta? The beta going?
3: Yeah, so uh, the beta for the open beta for Diablo Four went pretty well, uh, actually, um, or some may argue incredibly well. So basically, Diablo Four was playable for two extended weekends. Um, and during the first weekend it was only playable by those who purchased um um some uh, premium version of the game in the second weekend it was playable uh, yeah it was available to everyone for free for around 4 days and um it has been reported that across these two weekends, players have played for a total of 62 million hours—a combined of 62 million hours, which is essentially the equivalent of 7,000 years of playtime. Um, so, you know, that's that's quite a number. Um, and yeah, the feed the feedback generally has been very positive.
0: Yeah, I have opinions. Um... <laughs> to me, it's just Diablo. Like, it's just you know, Diablo is Diablo. It's gonna sell really freaking well. Um, and in large part, the game is pretty unchanged. Like, if you played last Diablo, it'll feel really similar. It's just a, a slightly prettier and a creepy way, you know, world. Um, where you know Diablo things happen. Um, so I actually, and that'll perform really well. I think, from my point of view, like from from having watched a ton of other people play this game, because when I looked at the beta, the server kept on crashing on me, um, that it feels, um, what's the way to put it? I think the formula isn't necessarily stale, but from what I've watched, it maybe could use some innovation at this point. Like, I wish they were pushing the envelope a bit better. The production quality is great. The combat system is typical Diablo. But the level scaling seems like that could get st- Stale, like, as the same generally recurring monsters scale with you as you level up, the skill tree seems maybe to not have a ton of variety or really feel like it makes that huge of a difference. Um, and when from what I've read, it, it feels maybe a bit more like an MMO than an ARPG in some some ways, which maybe is a bit different from what you know the biggest fans of the franchise really want. so so yeah, I mean it's going to sell like crazy. I think I just wish they would push the envelope a bit more. Um, you know, other ARPGs like Path of Exile or even Lost Ark have innovated in this space and Diablo doesn't necessarily need to change things up as much as other players in the space have, but um seeing more signs of thoughtful evolution, I think, would have been nice. And it's not to say it's game over. They still could produce more updates through patches or through DLCs or things like that, but um but yeah. It doesn't really matter what I think, because it'll sell really well anyways. But I'm curious what you think, Jonathan, from having worked in the belly of the Activision Blizzard Beast, is Diablo ever going to change? Or is Diablo just always going to be Diablo as we've forever known it?
2: Well, first, I really worked in the Activision Beast, so I'm far from an expert in the Blizzard Beast. But I I will say this. What Activision learned and a lot of their core IP, and what we seem to have discovered is... Gamers are a surprisingly conservative lot. And what I mean by that is, like, they don't actually want that much change. The, the parallel I can make to that from the part of the belly of the beast I lived in, God, the backlash when we put Call of Duty in space, right? Like, a <laughs> huge, massive backlash. Y- you know, so I think you really hit the key word with, like, evolution. Like, Diablo should evolve slowly and I think you raised some excellent places where it could but these giant multi-billion dollar franchises do not seem to be rewarded for step stage evolution in fact they seem to be punished for that right and every time somebody writes off one of these major franchises for being stale or being old you know Candy Crush went on to continue to make billions a year COD went on to now be bigger than it ever was before after concerns that it wasn't evolving and so Activision, especially sort of facing a major monetization event, probably made a very smart decision to evolve a teeny bit and deliver the fans what they wanted, right? And, and again, it's like, how much does like a Marvel franchise movie like evolve? So careful evolution is probably the prudent, you know, I hate to sound like a CFO on these, uh, <laughs> you know, on these zooms, but you know, it's like the CFO's view of evolution is probably what's going to reward these multi-billion dollar IP. For better or for worse for better and for worse
1: i'm absolutely aligned with you jonathan even with marvel marvel is trying to evolve now with their movies and series and that's gaining massive backlash even just trying to create some diversity in their character set so i don't think there is financial incentive to try to evolve just to evolve you have a market it's known it's predictable You know how to satisfy your players. They're going to buy the next Diablo and continue spending with this live ops formula that they've perfected with Diablo Immortal. If I were in Blizzard's shoes, I wouldn't try to mix the formula too much if it's working.
0: That's fair. I mean, you're right. I think I just don't see the evolution at all, really, other than just kind of the looks. And so I feel like there still could be a little bit more done to even just future Proof the series for like another decade or something in a market that is more competitive than it used to be. So I, I totally understand the the CFO point of view, as you put it, and I think it's largely wise. And I don't think it needs crazy changes, but I still think it could be a bit better than it is. But again, my opinion doesn't matter because it's going to sell like crazy. So let's move on.
1: Okay, Jonathan. So why did E3 get canceled?
2: So. Big story of the week, right? E3 canceled, potentially a surprise, potentially not a surprise, right? Like it sort of feels like what we're trying to unpack here is had enough publishers made the decision on their own to leave where there wasn't enough great weight, gravitas and revenue to keep E3 alive for 2023 or was the process under new management and under Repop broken enough that that contributed to publishers choosing not to participate, right? Like we know E3 has had a very rocky history of huge highs and huge lows and going away even before the pandemic and coming back and being reborn. And it's in a little venue in Santa Monica. And I used to build $5 million booths for it. You know, it's lived in all iterations, but I don't believe you can blame the industry per se. Like it feels like without being completely behind the curtain this year, mistakes must have been made, right? Like gamers were all over CES. Gamers were all over, you know, South by Southwest. I had just come back from GDC that was crazy, busy, you know, felt like pre-pandemic times. Now, certainly those shows don't require, for the most part, multi-million dollar activations on the part of each publisher, right? They can be activated in smaller scale, more intimate ways, which potentially is part of the problem. But Gamescom was back on last year. Like It feels like there's an underlying strategic and management problem that in some ways has been foisted off on publisher participation.
0: I agree. I think uh, ReadPop probably dropped the ball in a few ways. Um, Probably is largely execution and um, not really picking up the pieces after COVID too well. But also, I mean, I think the reality of the market has changed quite a bit too, where it's just so much easier for publishers to go direct to consumer. And so, um, and all of the, you know, at least the big three, like console companies do a pretty good job (laughs) of that. And, you know, Jeff Keighley, he's done a, a nice job too, swooping in with summer game fest and, um, and he has very high participation from all the big players there too, which is really impressive. I mean, he, he executed well, um, So yeah, I have a hard time seeing exactly how E3 is really going to ever come back to at least what it was. Um, I don't know if it'll come back in general. I kind of hope so. I've never been to E3. I would love to to go to E3, even if it's the last one and it's not great, you know. just to say that I've been. Um, But yeah, I'm really curious to see where this goes next because the market doesn't need it the same way. But at the same time, I think fans would enjoy you know, what it used to be again.
2: I'm going to question whether the market doesn't need it, right? Because you you make a great point, which is gaming as a category has a large enough scale and enough enough cultural gravitas that they can create their own marketing beats, right? And that's proven. An analog I kind of like to compare this to is the auto shows, which has kind of gone through the, the same thing. And you're like, why the auto shows? So the auto shows is like the manufacturers used to activate multi million dollar booths, great expense at like LA auto show, New York auto show, Detroit auto show. And what you started to see was brands activating outside of the auto show, but they still used the beat or the blast radius of the auto show to tell the story. And, and even to your point about like the direct to, con, you know, direct to gamer activations, You know, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo used to put on their own events, but during the E3 period, right? Or I was at Activision of the Year where we put on the concert for Guitar Hero at the Staples Center, but during the E3 period. So yes, these gaming companies can pivot to around CES, around South by Southwest. They're just competing with a different kind of noise, right? But they're still competing with noise. I do think there's a role for them. And Here's my crazy, I I have two crazy ideas of how it can come back. One is have a media company buy E3 and the combination of the media activations around gaming, like a gaming media company like IGN, or even have Jeff Keighley buy, you know, E3 and come back could work. The second one is double down on where the heat is, right? Like, how about E3 2024 is in Mina. in the heart of like Saudi Arabia or Qatar, like regions that have like said, I'm spending $12 billion in this space. And then when that is successful, bring it back to L.A., right? That's sort of reborn it. So if you made me the CEO of E3 tomorrow, I'm shooting for like Saudi Arabia 2024 and then back in L.A. 2025.
3: On this point, do If E3 were to be held in, I don't know, in Saudi Arabia, do you think, I don't know, it would receive backlash from the wider gaming community, given, you know, the region's um, history?
2: It could. I mean, they're very different markets, right? I stole that strategy a little bit from the watch industry, who came back immediately post-COVID, To do kind of like major luxury watch events in that region of the world because they remain the largest buyers. Now that may be a very different market that didn't get the same backlash. And there could be backlash, so that could be an issue, but you know, remains to be seen. All I will say is like look at the energy around the World Cup, right? Like I'm not going to delve into the politics of anything, but like everybody who wanted money, wanted to raise money, was trying to raise money, was there in
0: Qatar. What do you think is most likely? to happen
2: most likely to happen yeah I think most likely to happen they give it one more try in 2024 under better management and that in in Los Angeles and that defines the state of the franchise
0: okay I'm curious do you think that'll work though if they give it one last shot you think it'll stick
2: I may be the rare believer in IRL events this year but you know I I made an effort to go to CES I made an effort to go to Dice I made an effort to go to GDC and it felt like for no other reason than people wanted and needed to see people again there is a marketplace demand for industry specific gathering spaces IRL now Does that mean that companies have the stomach in this economic climate to build $5 million booths again? I don't know. But I do feel like business wants to go back to doing business face-to-face.
1: I think the thing I'll miss more about E3 is having the in-real-life fever dream together of experiencing something all at once and just taking in the energy that it creates with awesome reveals. And personally, I believe that these events sort of need to evolve with the globalization of gaming and not everyone can buy this really expensive ticket to travel to another country and accommodation. And we're starting to see this with, for example, conferences like the GDC. It's just so expensive. It locks a massive amount of the market of the game developers, not just talk about the consumers of being able to attend these. And so, it's very expensive for companies to attend E3, and it's also very expensive for the players to attend E3. And so, and then I miss when I'm watching to the the game announcements just through a stream. I really miss being with my friends and being with strangers and just awing like, "Oh, gasp! What is this awesome new game?" And you just enter into this fever community experience. Um, and so, I I really hope we're moving towards a place where there are more localized simultaneous or across uh, time zones like just localized um activations where you can go with other people in real life and it is accessible to experience these reveals all together because i don't i don't think that's a gap that digital will plug for now
2: that's so Bang on. And I'll tell you, that's what it felt like in the room at the Game Awards this year, right? Like that's a little bit of a less of a participatory and lights down experience, but it felt like a room full of people in Los Angeles celebrating their shared love for gaming. And I think people deeply want that.
1: Well, I think we'll move on then to the next the next topic about the market stabilizing. Less of a fever dream. Hopefully not a fever dream,
0: Aaron. What's going on? <laughs> sure. So last week, data.ai, which is Novik's mobile data partner, published two reports. Uh, it's Q1 Gaming Index and its State of Mobile Gaming 2023 report. Um, they're interesting from a high level, so so go check them out. But uh, there is a, a quote from the Venture Beat article that covers the report that I wanted to call out and get some, get some opinions on. It says, data.ai suggests that mobile gaming's new normal is a much higher plateau than it was in the pre-pandemic years. The Q1 index predicts that gamers will spend more than $1.6 billion a week on games in the first quarter of this year. That's about a 28% increase on spending from pre-pandemic levels, uh, which is around Q1 2020. Um, They're also downloading games at a rate of 1.2 billion titles per week globally. The numbers aren't as high as they were in the peak, pandemic periods such as q1 2021 or 2022 but they are above where they were at the beginning of the worldwide shutdowns so um if you look at the chart that's in the article um of consumer spending games for q1 unsurprisingly from 2020 to 2021 it blasted up from 2021 to 2022 it fell a bit and from 2022 to 2023 um it's essentially flat so um, you know, if you just kind of step back and look at how they were portraying the numbers, while it's true that from 2020 to 2023, Q1 spending is up 28%, which is, you know, about eight and a half percent annualized. That eight and a half percent annualized doesn't really exist because it's sort of been all over the place and extrapolating any kind of line of best fit is pretty, pretty misleading uh, because of the impacts of ATT specifically are probably going to keep the market flat ish for a while um so anyways uh, i don't know how long we really need to spend on this topic because we talked about mobile quite a bit um but i'm curious what you think about how the best way to frame up this so-called new normal (laughs) is these days or even if it makes sense to call it uh, a new normal it feels wrong like in my opinion to frame it as like a pre versus post-pandemic A new normal versus more of like a pre versus post ATT, for example. But I'm just curious, like when you look at these numbers, how they're portrayed, and how you just kind of view this market going forward, what do you think about a new normal or not in mobile gaming?
1: I I agree with you that it's hard to pull apart the pandemic and the post IDFA effects. I think we are seeing still an effect of the market on uh, Google Play with Android. So it's not. Just IDFA and privacy changes. I will not be celebrating the market stabilization yet. One quarter can be coincidence. Two quarters, maybe there's a trend. Three quarters, then I'll make my own conclusions. And I also don't want to celebrate a return to growth too early because we will have the Google Privacy Sandbox changes coming at some point. Maybe end of 2024, beginning of 25 we're not sure yet. And so... The mindset that I'm in at the moment is we really need to learn how to go back to growth and increasing financial performance and launching new games and scaling new games in this post IDFA landscape so that when the Google privacy changes roll in, we won't see the downward trend that we saw in all these effects because we can take the learnings ahead.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I think um, from my point of view, maybe I just like, I just quibble with the framing of some of, some of this, like it feels a bit disingenuous to, (laughs) to like cherry pick 2020 through, you know, 2023 and be like, look, the plateau is at a higher level than it used to be when in reality, maybe the better framing is like, oh crap, it's a plateau (laughs) versus like, you know, it used to actually be a line that went, went up. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're right, Maria. Um, I think we the the industry needs to figure out how to how to launch and scale um, when UA is harder, um, or just figure out those new techniques. And I don't know. I don't think we need to spend too much time in that. Yeah. Um, but just, anyways, that was the, interesting. Um-
1: A message of hope. I think when I first started working in the mobile games industry and there were just clear incumbents in the top charts, I entered the industry thinking, how will I ever topple them? Is it even possible for a small company to grow and reach a scale of the companies that arrived early in the, in the growth of the mobile gaming space? But now with these changes of the landscape, I'm kind of enthusiastic of, okay, wait, as a small company, if you can kind of figure out how to use this to your advantage, we can perhaps see just a mix up of these top charts and seeing new games and new companies and a shift in general in the market. So that's what excites me and what keeps me hopeful for the next few years of mobile gaming. Well, let's talk about games. Mihai, yeah, Sky Mavis announced some games.
3: Um, indeed. So, Sky Mavis, the creator of blockchain game Axie Infinity, um, has announced um, it is partnering with four different game studios as part of their Builders program. So they're essentially making also making some equity grants into these studios, and you know um, they will build together some games that will be exclusive to the Ronin network. Um, but before talking about the individual studios, I think it's useful to just do a brief recap of uh, Sky Mavis and what's been going on in the last few years on their end. Uh So obviously they've released uh, Axie Infinity, which was, you know, um, kind of the poster child of blockchain games, has seen over four billion um, USD in trading activity on its marketplace. Um was later hacked for six hundred and twenty five million. Um in the meantime, SkyMavis has raised some money and made the users whole. Also addressed some of the security concerns by shifting from um shifting Ronin from uh, proof of authority to delegated proof of stake, which, as I said, is likely to alleviate some of these concerns, but not eliminate them entirely. Uh, Because, you know, there's still a bridge between Ronin and Ethereum and bridges generally introduce uh, new um, attack vectors, or make uh, the possibility of an attack or a hack um, quite a bit higher. But uh, today, SkyMavis is focused on building um, three core pillars, so to speak. So on the one hand, they are building games. So They've released Axie Infinity, which is the OG blockchain game, they've released Axie Origins, which is kind of a free-to-play game that's meant to draw people into the Axie ecosystem and draw them towards the main game. Um, They've released some land gameplay, right? Uh, You you, you can, users could acquire land and now uh, there is some gameplay around that, there is a separate game. Um, So this is the first pillar. The second pillar is kind of the gaming adjacent tools. So they have a proprietary wallet, which users can leverage. They have a proprietary marketplace, which uh, both the the Axie games and the games uh, that they are partnering with will be able to leverage. Uh, And they also have um, something called the Mavis app, which is kind of a digital storefront. Uh, So similar in a way to Steam and to the, uh, the game store. Um, but th- there's something that doesn't really make sense here to me because they have this Mavis app that you can download on your PC. But Sky Mavis has stated repeatedly that their core focus is on mobile. So I'm not sure how these two things will work together, if they will in the future. And there's one more thing here that since, you know, their games are, although they're available on mobile, they're not available on any of the two main stores. So they're not available on the Google Play Store or the iOS store, which is obviously a huge distribution problem because that's how you get, you know, you get people to play them. You need to make these games available, but because of the fact that they contain NFTs and regulatory uncertainty, they are not yet available. And now the third pillar is the kind of the blockchain infrastructure tools uh, pillar. Um, You know, they have the, uh the blockchain, obviously, uh, the decentralized exchange Katana, uh, which players can use to swap tokens and stuff like that. So this is kind of a short, um, you know, a short description of where Sky SkyMavis is now. And now onto the four studios that they've been that they've partnered with. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if I should go through all four of them. Or if I should just describe in a in, in, you know do a one-liner of what their main specialty is?
1: Yeah, one-liner sounds good. Yeah. Nope.
3: All right. So the first one is called Directive Games. Uh, it was founded in 2014. Uh, developed some relatively unknown VR AR games, um, and yeah, now it's partnered with uh, Sky Mavis. The second one is Tribe Studio. Um, It's, in essence, they're they're planning to develop a social MMO on the blockchain, like pretty much a lot of other studios. uh, Building MMOs on the blockchain, or in general, seems to be a very popular strategy because they can essentially be, you know, a a successful MMO is poised to be a cash cow for many years to come. But this doesn't mean that um, it's an easy task. MMOs are some of the most complex games to develop, all the more so if they're on the blockchain, because you need to build a whole economy around them. The third studio is called uh, Balling Games. It's founded it's founded by some people who build a popular Anybang series in South Korea. Um, and the fourth studio is called Bald.io, and they're basically building a, a cricket game uh, for the Indian mobile market. Um,
1: very different from one another,
3: yeah, I think that's part of their strategy. I think they're kind of trying to appeal to different audiences, right so they're trying to appeal to the mobile gaming audience in India, they're trying to appeal to the mobile gaming audience in South Korea and in that part of the world, and they're also trying to appeal to um you know to western audiences uh with uh, the first two with the first two games, but yeah. I think the main question is, do you think, you know, do you think these studios will release good games that will be played by a considerable number of people? Because my concern here is that there's nothing that to me indicates this will be the case.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's right. Let me let me share my my point of view, and maybe just zoomed out a little bit. Then I'll zoom back into the the game. So I've always admired um, um, Sky Mavis's ambition, and you know, as a flag bearer of this new movement, amassing a ton of users and, and funding, and then trying to you know turn that into a much larger ecosystem. Um, and I think that's exciting. And all this news, you know, it's great to see them still in the game. Uh, but I think they shifted from being a first mover to you know, being more, much more of an underdog now in the world of Web3 because of obviously Axie Infinity blowing up. It wasn't a sustainable economy. And two, the Ronin hack really set back um, those ambitions to onboard other teams and developers onto its platform. And with those, te- with those two things being really compressed, the other parts of the ecosystem you know, can't really gain traction either since they all, they all work together. So the company has been largely quiet for a while as they've just been building to, to kind of fix Ronin to now have this major upgrade to delegated proof of stake, which is exciting. But now the question is like, you know, are these games going to move the needle enough? Not just for like the games themselves, but for the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at these games um, from the standpoint of like they're very curated. Sky Mavis before had a creator program which empowered who were people who were essentially fans to make small games. But I think when we talked about this like a year ago or whatever that was, uh, you know, we were pretty skeptical because the quality of the games didn't look awesome. The creator revenues, the revenue share terms didn't look that competitive and it just had weird quirks like forcing uh users to like adopt like the axs token like across their games which just made it more limiting and i don't think that program has worked out super well but maybe it was a stepping stone to what this um became which actually has professional teams um, but uh, another couple of observations i had about this move is that at least two of these four games from what i could tell will not have web3 features out of the gate um, which shows a pretty major um transition from being like very much play to earn first to now gameplay first, to then you know build a better game, build an audience, to so then start to integrate Web3 features, probably in more subtle ways. Um and then third, one of these games is using the Axie Infinity IP for a match three game, I don't fully under <laughs> understand um, that uh, the match three component and how that'll work with Mavis hub and stuff like that. And it's just a super competitive market anyways, but, but uh, whatever it, it still shows that they're trying to think of like more utility for the core IP. And uh, I think X infinity has like 200,000 DAUs. So it's obviously tiny in comparison to other like mainstream games, but you know, still is an asset and really their community is their largest advantage right now. Um, and then lastly, yeah, one of the games is, uh, cricket, which shows that they're focusing on the India market, which obviously is huge. And from what I could tell is, you know, much more receptive, less critical of, you know, web three gaming, um, as a whole. And that's, that would be a very new direction for sky Mavis too. So it still is a bit scattershot in the approach here. Um, and I'm not sure how much it will really work or scale, but it is a it is a very positive development. So props to the team for getting to this point. The hard part for me to understand, uh, or just like really want to be super bullish on this, is while uh, Sky Mavis was pretty quiet and building all of this up, we saw Polygon and Immutable, in particular, just turbocharged forward, have pretty tremendous BD and be able to to onboard a ton of external partners onto their their tech and their platforms. Um, And so I think it's going to be really hard for Sky Mavis to kind of compete against those two companies, especially now that they're partnering together um, in more ways. And maybe they'll have some tricks up their sleeve or much more announcements to come. But I think shifting from a first mover to now being the underdog is a tough position to be in. And while this is a positive development, it's not nearly enough to compete um, more ecosystem-wide over the next few years, at least.
2: It's interesting because from where I sit, Axio Infinity was a financial schema before it was a game, and then it blew up. And I don't think there was actually any real gaming there. And you raised a great point where now these are Web 2 games, not Web 3 games. And so really there's a disconnect between Axie Infinity's first audience and first position and now the current position. And what I can't tell is, is it a a major walk back to try to actually be a gaming company or is it just simply a disconnect, right, from who their audience was and what their audience seeks versus what they're making now? You raise a great point about Polygon and Immutable, and they have incredible BD but I would also characterize that as checkbook BD, right? Which is a lot of checks were written to a lot of partners to get them on the platform, which is a little different than belief in the platform. And I believe even in this news that checks were written to these developers. So I I think we have to find in this web three gaming world, you, you know, games that are built with an audience in mind with an audience in mind and developers are in place because they're believers instead of check recipients right? It was very easy to go raise money in this world to build games by aligning yourself with a major platform. And that's very different than the way traditional gaming ecosystems have been built. And as all these funds become depleted, what happens to the whole space, right? As people are making decisions without big advance checks, where does it all go?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Probably to where the most where the network effects are, where the most players and the most other developers are. And when that works, that also, you know, turbocharges both fundraising and just revenue for those other companies to get advantages and reinvesting in R&D at rates that other the other platforms can't really match, is sort of where I would guess. But to kind of your earlier point, I do think there, there has been a disconnect between um, what players initially expected and what they do now, um and you know before the expectation, the job to be done was to to earn money <laughs> from playing games, uh which is what the entire web three gaming bubble you know was was driven by and I do think that you know many teams Sky Mavis most of all they had like they were coming from the right place like they like their heart was was like in a place of like helping people unlock economic prosperity it just didn't just didn't work um and so now with a much smaller audience, because many people went away because I couldn't make money anymore, the job to be done has shifted from less earning, although that still might be a component, um, to more just um, asset ownership <laughs> and just being excited to be part of a community. And I think um, I think their community is their largest asset, um, but obviously it's not... At a scale that it, that similar to other franchises, so it only has you know more minimal impact and how it can drive a full ecosystem from from this point, but I do think the job to be done of more ownership and leveraging assets across games and joining the community, having fun with the community is more of the the driver, um, which is a a very much a, a disconnect, and I'm not one hundred percent sure if that's strong enough to Um, really push things forward in a super competitive way. It'll take more than that.
2: Uh, You raised the point about community twice, which I think is really important. I was out in the marketplace raising money for something with Axie Infinity as a comp in the deck. And there was a huge amount of VC blowback, right? Like we actually ended up taking it out of the deck as a comp. Like it's become that much of a negative in the money raising space. And it's also interesting because it's been that community has been held up as like one of the larger scale, you know, in Web3 and kind of like a target mark. And you raised earlier in this conversation, relative to the community scale of traditional gaming, it's actually quite teeny, right? That if you live in this bubble, it's quite big. But if you step into a larger gaming ecosystem, the scale really isn't there. So Um,
1: I think the way that I'm processing SkyMafis and I won't be arrogant and enough to say that they should have done this in a different way they were in a very nascent market it was so hard to know what the right decisions were made I'm sure they made the best decisions with the information that they had at hand but I see almost three three big moments where that has led to them to to their current standpoint I think one they started building a game and it looked cute and they had a community but I ended losing fuel because they shifted their attention to trying to build being a platform. I think Aaron used the term being just scattered. And so instead of like doubling down on something where you already had a community, where you already had a foundation and really focus on trying to build that and make it sustainable and grow it, they decided to try to build out being a platform. But then they went quiet. And in a nascent market where you have so many companies trying to enter blockchain, and so many of them have no idea who to work with. You'll probably go to the person that talks the most because they have the most presence. You feel that they're more trustworthy. And I think you had a really great point with Immutable and Polygon. They're the first people to think about if you're ever, you know, oh, I want to make a blockchain game. Mm, OK, I'm going to go and speak with them. Like who's Ronin really in this in this market apart from the checkbook? And then, yeah, by being quiet, they just lost their market share. And they also lost their identity. And I think that's the third point. I just don't know who Sky Mavis is. Do they make games? Are they a platform? Are they a publisher? I just don't understand what their dream and what their value proposition is at the moment for the market. And so I really hope that they can find that. And unfortunately looking at all the different kind of games like a VR AR company and then an MMO is just again it's like a scattered a scattered proposition of what games players can find on this blockchain. It's not even targeting like one community, it's targeting so many other different communities. So how are you going to leverage your existing community? I don't know if it's a bit of a rant. I hope this makes sense. Um yeah yeah, I'm hoping to see the consolidated vision of Sky Mavis really.
0: Yeah. It
2: it makes total sense in this time where everybody has the attend. in this time where everybody has the attention span of a gnat. If you don't understand who somebody is basically instantly, you're in deep trouble. And that, and that's really the powerful point in your point about their identity issues.
0: Yeah. The very last thing I'll I'll say on this is just to put a plug for an interview that, um, that Nico on our team for this podcast did with um, Kathleen. I'm blanking on her last name, but she's like the head of BD, BD for Ronin. And I've heard really good things about the interview. I haven't listened to it yet, but it just mm. came out um, a few days ago at the point that this episode will come out. So I'm sure that'll put much more context around this conversation, answer many of the questions that we have. And um, yeah, if you're interested in this conversation, I'm sure that one will be super interesting too.
1: I'll go and listen to it. I should have listened to be prepared with my phones.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: So I think I think we'll wrap up here. We're a little bit over over time. Uh, Mihai, thanks for joining for your first episode. Jonathan, Aaron, it's always nice to have you here. And yeah, it was lovely to host you for this week. And we'll see you in the next week. Bye, everyone.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novik.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Navic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.navic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novik Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.